morning. We are glad you're here today. We're very thankful for the opportunity to be back, to be together. I know that there are probably any number of folks that would like to be here today, but unable to do so because of health issues. And so we look forward to having them back with us very, very soon. We're going to be thinking today about what the psalmist said many years ago with regard to man. And that is when the psalmist asked the question, What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor. In our study today, I want to talk for maybe a moment or two about seeing ourselves as God sees us. How many parents are here today? Do you remember when your children were born? Do you remember your first reaction when you saw your son or daughter? Did you not think that was the most beautiful child you had ever seen? You ever heard somebody say about their own child after having been born, that's the ugliest child I've ever seen? Now we might say that about somebody else's child, but we will never say that about our own child. Your child, in many respects, and I understand that we all have our flaws and imperfections, but in your mind, your child is perfect, right? In one sense of the word. When you think about your own life, your perception of yourself, what comes to mind? How do you perceive yourself? You know, I think many times in life we tend to focus on our own imperfections and shortcomings. Now, no one's perfect, I understand that. But by and large, there are times in life when we fail to see ourselves as we really are. Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. But I do believe that there are a lot of folks in our world today, their perception of themselves is skewed in many, in many ways. Our perception of ourself is born out of what friends and family members think about us, the environment that we find ourselves in. There are a lot of things that contribute to our self-worth or lack thereof. And I really think if we could only see ourselves as God sees us, it might help us to better appreciate ourselves, to see ourselves in a different light. Now, I understand, based on what God said in the long ago concerning the anointing of David, the king. You remember God said that he looks on the heart, not the outward appearance. There are a lot of folks in life, we judge them, we size them up by outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. So when God looks at us, as His creation, what does He see? When God looks at you individually, what does He see? 
You know, the Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 1 that we have been made in the image and the likeness of God. David would write in Psalm 103, he remembers, or rather he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God knows us inside out, doesn't he? And God has an accurate depiction of who we really are. So I want us to think for a minute or two about the theme today, seeing ourselves as God sees us. First of all, to understand that from God's vantage point, and that's really what we're talking about today, from God's vantage point, number one, we are lovable. There are a lot of people in the world today that will tell you up front they are unworthy of love. Some would say they are unlovable. And yet God finds us as lovable beings, doesn't He? There are some principles of God's love set forth in Scripture that I think that we would be remiss if we didn't consider in light of our study today. First and foremost, remember in 1 John 4 verse 8, the Bible says God is love. And the immensity of that love. In Ephesians 3 verse 19, Paul talks about the love of Christ which passes all knowledge. I'm not sure that I can fully grasp the depth of God's love. I believe it. And I know that God has loved me and that God will always love me just as He's always loved you and will always love you. So the immensity of His love for His creation. Now again, think about your children. When your child, when your children were born into this world, there was a sense of love unconditional love that you began showering on that child. I remember when I was just a young fella and when I was just a boy. In the summertime, I was born with two birthmarks. And so in the summertime, those birthmarks were visible. I was very self-conscious about them. I felt like that when people saw me, that's what they saw. In my mind, that was imperfection. Now, if you had talked to my folks, they'd say, you know, we don't even see a birthmark. But you know, when we have genuine love for someone, we see through their imperfections, don't we? Well, God understands where we are in life. He understands who we are in life. And to know that God genuinely loves us. I mean, not necessarily look at the things that we, that we do in life and look at those things positively speaking, but God will always love us. And then what about the inclusivity of God's love. You remember 
Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world. God's Word tells us that His love for us is inclusive. He loves the entirety of the human family, doesn't He? There's no one excluded from the love of Almighty God. But then, what about the power of God's love? To understand, first and foremost, God's love for us is personal. God genuinely loves each and every one of us, and that love is personal. I mentioned a moment ago, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. You could insert your name there. All of the passages of Scripture that talk about the love of God for the human family, for the world, you could easily insert your name there, and that would be biblical. Why? Because God genuinely loves you as a human being, as a person. But God's love is not just personal, but I believe it is provocative. In the sense that when we come to understand how much God loves us, then we tend to reciprocate that. You remember John said in 1 John 4, 19, we love Him because He first loved us. Now Paul said in Romans chapter 5 at verse 6, when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. God sent His Son to die for the human family. And the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet because of God's intrinsic love for us, He sent His Son to die in our stead. It says something about the God that we serve, doesn't it? And so we show our love for God by trying to the best of our ability to honor His Word. As Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so, first and foremost, we are lovable. But then secondly, we are redeemable. There is no one beyond the scope of God's redemption. With all of our imperfections, flaws, insecurities, inadequacies in this life, we are still redeemable from God's vantage point. So I want to just, first of all, talk for a minute or two about what God has done on behalf of sinners. You know, Jesus said in the long ago that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost in Luke 19.10. It was said of Jesus by the angel to Joseph that Mary would conceive, bring forth a son, his name would be called Jesus, and he would save his people from their sins. That says something about the goodness and graciousness of the God that we serve. You remember the psalmist wrote in Psalm 34 in verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. When you go back and you begin to just chronicle God's dealings with the human family. From the days of Adam forward, the goodness of God is on display, isn't it? And not just His goodness, but also His grace, His unmerited favor toward us. Paul said, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man. 
God has lavished His grace upon those of us who belong to the human family. You remember Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast or glory. God has lavished upon us His grace because of His love and kindness for us. Again, think about in the context of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul said in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ, He said, By grace are you saved. So, there's something redeemable in the eyes of God about the human family, isn't there? That's why when you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, following the fall of man in the garden, God began unveiling His redemptive plan. Why? Because of His great love for us. Because of His goodness. God didn't have to do that, did He? Did God owe the human family anything? Well, the answer is no. There's no way that we can ever put God in debt to us. But we are the crown of His creation. As a parent, you want the absolute best for your child, don't you? And as a parent, don't you do everything within your power to provide for your child the best of the best? Why is that? Because we have their highest good in mind. Well, that's God. But now I want you to think about, first we think about what God has done for sinners, but secondly, what God has done with sinners. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are some things that just leap off the pages concerning God's work with sinful people. Now I want to just maybe ask you to think about something for a minute. This past week I began to think about God and His dealings, or Christ and His dealings, with those about him in the first century. It occurred to me that Jesus often directed the brunt of his anger, so to speak, indignation toward those who viewed themselves as, spiritually speaking, above others. Scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, you remember Jesus delivered a series of woes directed specifically at them. And He said, outwardly you appear righteous before men, but inwardly you're full of uncleanness. In Luke 18, Jesus directed a parable at those who viewed themselves as righteous and despised others. So Jesus taught a parable, didn't He? The Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector. And He said two men went down to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And you can just picture the Pharisee. And he said, God, I thank You that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast 
twice a week, give tithes of all that I possess. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the publican, the tax collector. Jesus said he would not so much as lift his eyes toward heaven, but beat his breast. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think that's, I think that's really why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Theirs was about outward show. Jesus could look into people's hearts. And so as you begin looking at Jesus and His dealings with those in the first century, what stands out to you? First and foremost to me, Jesus loved the unlovable. Do you feel lovable? Do you think that people find you lovable? Probably one of the most devastating things that can ever happen to us as members of the human family is for somebody to tell us, I don't love you anymore. This week, there will be husbands who will tell their wives, I don't love you anymore. There are wives that will make that same statement. And yet Jesus, He loved the unlovable. You remember in Matthew chapter 9 when He called Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector, wasn't he? Matthew was an outcast by those in the Jewish family. They looked down on him. Matter of fact, the charge was made to the disciples of Jesus. Here he is in the house of Matthew. He's eating with them, and they want to know, why, does your why is it that your master, your teacher, eats with sinners? Well, Jesus said, you know what? I haven't come to call the righteous, but rather sinners to repentance. He said those who are well, they don't need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus had time for people that in many respects were unlovable. You remember in John chapter 4, Jesus and his discussion with the woman at the well? She was a Samaritan, wasn't she? And you remember John said that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. In Luke chapter 10, when the question was posed to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? What's your reading of it? He said, well, you're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbors yourself. Was he right or wrong? He was right. But Jesus, because this man sought to justify himself, asked this question, and who is my neighbor? The bottom line, and the thrust of the parable, here was a Samaritan that rendered aid to someone who was in need. And you've got two religious people, a priest and a Levite, who when they saw this man that had fallen among robbers, what did they do? Passed by on the other side, didn't they? Well, what's the point? The point is, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, a Samaritan. In the eyes of God, you're equal and you need to 
demonstrate benevolence to them. So there's something about the ministry of the Lord that tells us Jesus loved the unlovable. Secondly, Jesus touched the untouchable. In Mark chapter 1, there's a, an account of a man who was a leper. In the first century, lepers were deemed unclean, weren't they? Matter of fact, they lived in isolation. Had we lived in the first century, would we have wanted to be in the presence of those who were lepers? Absolutely not. Would we want to, would we want to rub shoulders with them again? The answer is no. And yet in Mark chapter 1, we read of Jesus, and the Bible says that a leper came to him, knelt before him, and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Mark said that Jesus was moved with compassion, reached out his hand, and touched him. What does that say to you? It tells me that Jesus is willing to touch the untouchable. Do you, do you ever view yourself as untouchable, unworthy, inadequate, beyond the scope of God's redemptive power? I think there are a lot of people in our world today. They'll tell you they're unlovable, they are untouchable. There are a lot of folks in our world, one of the real reasons why they gravitate to alcohol and various types of drugs is because they're trying to self-medicate. Their self-image, their self-worth, in many respects, is not what it ought to be. There's a third thought here. Jesus loved the unlovable. He touched the untouchable. And then the Bible says he reached the unreachable. Go back again to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, you have an account of the woman that was at Jacob's well. And she had the opportunity to converse with Jesus. And she couldn't understand why Jesus, a Jew, would be willing to talk to her. Number one, she was a Samaritan. Number two, she was a woman. In the first century, women were viewed in unfavorable terms. They weren't viewed as an equal to man. And so she couldn't understand that. What about Saul of Tarsus? The Bible says in Acts chapter 7 that when Stephen was stoned, they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. In chapter 8, the Bible says that Saul made havoc of the church. In chapter 9, he was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And yet, in the first century, here we have another individual in many respects, would have been viewed or deemed unreachable. Had you been living in the first century, would you have thought it wise to have a Bible study with Saul of Tarsus? Would you have wanted to have a Bible study with Saul of Tarsus? There's a third thought. Number one, I believe we are lovable. Number two, we are redeemable. Number three, we are usable. 
we are usable in the eyes of God. Now I want you to think about something. From God's vantage point, we are usable despite our past condition and our present circumstances. You ever thought about that? In the eyes of God, He can use you. Now, let's just for a moment or two think about how God has the ability to see our potential. It might be that you, from your vantage point, see no potential in your life. In other words, you don't see how you could be a viable contributor to the kingdom of God. But God sees us as usable people. Again, go back to John chapter 4. You remember during the course of their conversation when Jesus asked this woman for a drink of water, and she didn't have anything to draw with. And so Jesus then talked about living water. And he said, you know, if you had known who it was that asked you for a drink of water, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Well, she wanted that living water. She didn't necessarily understand what Jesus was talking about. But think about this woman. The Bible says that she had been married five times. That was her past. Presently, we jettison forward, find Jesus at the well. Jesus, in his conversation with her, you remember he asked the question or asked her to go call her husband? And she said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, the man that you're now living with is not your husband. What kind of of usability would you have from a usable standpoint what would have been the odds of her having an impact for the cause of Christ or for the Lord you think Jesus saw something in her that was usable that he could use to her benefit and for His glory? What about Saul of Tarsus? Look at the reputation of Saul. And go back and read his biography, his resume. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, of the stock of Israel. He was a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. I mentioned the fact that when Stephen was put to death, Saul was right there, consenting to his death. Chapter 8, Luke said, here he is making havoc of the church. Chapter 9, he goes to the high priest, asks letters that he might go to the synagogues in Damascus and bind those who are followers of the way, whether men or women, and bring them bound. To Jerusalem. Paul, in recounting his life as a persecutor, said he had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. So I want to ask you, what was it that God saw in Saul of Tarsus that said, I can use you? You remember when 
the Lord met him on the road to Damascus. And he asked the question, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responded by saying, who are you, Lord? In that context, Saul spends three days fasting and praying. Ananias is instructed to go to him. Initially, Ananias was hesitant to go to the man that had the reputation of being a persecutor of Christians. And yet God said to him, the Lord said to him, go your way. Listen to him. He said, he is a chosen vessel of mine. What was it God saw in Saul? Had to see something usable, didn't he? Didn't he see something usable in the life of Saul? So, brings me to our final thought. We're lovable, redeemable, usable, and profitable. We're profitable. I don't care who you are. Doesn't matter. In the eyes of God, you can be profitable to Him. Many of you here today, you are profitable to God. There's something that you have that is unique that you can offer, not just the human family, but that you can offer in the kingdom of God. So what about this idea of being profitable? Let's go back to that sinful woman at Jacob's well. Do you remember during the course of their conversation when Jesus said, you know, you've been married five times, the man you now have is not your husband. She said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Then they talked about the place of worship. And she said, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. And then Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah in verse 26. And the record says that she went back to her own people, the Samaritan people, and said, come see a man that's told me everything that I've ever done. What about that? Do you think Jesus saw something in her that was usable and that could be profitable for His glory? The answer is unquestionably yes. Now listen. The text tells us that she did go back to her own people. And as a result of that, they had the opportunity to spend a couple of days with Jesus. And they said, now we believe, not because of your testimony, but they became convinced that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah of the world. So here's a lady that's been married five times. She's now living with a man. And Jesus saw something in her that he said, you know what, I can use that. I can use her. She can be profitable to me. Saul of Tarsus. We're all familiar with Saul of Tarsus. I mentioned a moment ago his track record. When Saul stood before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, you remember 
the Apostle Paul admitted his shortcomings. He said, I thought within myself to do all things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. His intent was to bludgeon Christianity. His goal was to destroy those who were followers of the way. And yet, the Lord appeared to him, and he said, I've appeared that you might be a witness on my behalf of the things that you've seen and of the things that I will reveal unto you. I'm sending you, or I deliver you from the Jewish people, from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. All right, Paul, what then was the purpose behind your calling? Paul said, that the eyes of these people might be opened, that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness and an inheritance. Do you know anybody in the kingdom of God that has had a greater impact for good than Saul of Tarsus? Now go back prior to his conversion. When Ananias said, Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. If you and I had been living in the first century and we had been friends with Saul of Tarsus, and then we heard about his conversion, would we have ever dreamed or envisioned that here's a guy that's going to literally turn the world upside down? Here's what Paul said to Agrippa. He said, Therefore I was not disobedient. To the heavenly vision. But rather, Paul began preaching the gospel in Damascus, Jerusalem, throughout Judea. What was he teaching? What was he preaching? That people needed to turn to God. That they needed to repent. To do works befitting repentance. I just hear Paul saying to the church at Corinth, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves as your servants for his sake. Here's a guy that became a tremendous missionary on behalf of the Lord. A preacher, a teacher, an inspired writer. I mean, this was a guy that lived Christianity day in and day out. Who would have dreamed that? Who would have ever thought that? But I believe when you look at the life of Saul of Tarsus, God said, you know what, there's something I can use. There's something profitable about him. So what's the application to us? Sometimes we view ourselves as flawed. We don't realize how special we are in the eyes of God. You need to understand how incredibly unique you are as a member of the human family. You are the crown of God's creation. You are the best of the best from the vantage point. You've been made in the image and the likeness of God. Does God see you where you are? Yes. Does God see potential in you as a human being? Yes. So as a mother who's trying her best, who's trying to be a Christian example in the home, 
who's trying to lead her children to Christ. Is that something usable and profitable in the kingdom of God? Yes. As a Christian woman who may be working out in the world, can you be useful and profitable to God as a light in a darkened world? Again, the answer is yes. As a Christian husband who's trying to rear your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, who's trying to be a spiritual leader, is that something that God can use to His glory? Yes. Can you be profitable in the kingdom of God? Again, the answer is yes, isn't it? I would hope and pray that the view we have of ourselves is not necessarily from the material or from a carnal vantage point. But I really believe that we need to see ourselves as God sees us. To see ourselves as someone who is lovable, redeemable, usable, and can be profitable in the kingdom of God. You can be profitable. Many of you are profitable. I want to close today asking you to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your wonderful love for us. And Father, we admit our shortcomings and failures and imperfections. We acknowledge that there are many times in life when we live far below the ideals of Scripture. And Father, sometimes we allow the devil to encroach upon our lives and to sell us with the idea that we are unworthy and unlovable, unprofitable to God. Help us, Father, to, to look at ourselves from the vantage point of Scripture, to realize that we are the crown of your creation, to live in such a way so that we might bring honor and glory to your name. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ. Jesus loves you. Many of us, we have had the opportunity to sing that song from just a little fella or a little girl. Those words are true. Jesus does love us. If you're here today and you've never obeyed the gospel, I want to encourage you to do what the Bible says God wants you to do, and that's to be saved. God's not willing that any, I would underscore that, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? I know you believe that. Would you be willing to repent, to turn to God, to confess His name before others, to be immersed in water so that all of your sins might be washed away, just like Saul of Tarsus did? Let God put you in the church and then use whatever talent or ability God has blessed you with to serve Him, to honor Him, and to glorify Him. If you're here today and you're not what you ought to be and you need our prayers, you need the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And listen, here's the beauty of it. God will abundantly pardon all of your sins. Won't you come as we stand and sing? Wow.